This is the Brisbane Football Review with your host, James Coglin. One of these days, I will master the ability to complete a sentence. Scott Owen. Right, what would I know? I'm just the weekend host around here. And Adam Pace. Look, I think of what other choice you have. Starting now. You know, there's a sense of normalcy returning now, and it probably has something to do with the fact that here on the Brisbane Football Review, we've actually got multiple games to recap, multiple games to talk about, and it is a fantastic feeling. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the show on this steamy January afternoon. It's James Scott and Adam on Clutch Radio. And Adam, how's it feel being able to watch both the Brisbane Raw men's and women's sides? Oh, it's good. It's uh, football's back again. Um, it's been sort of stop-start uh, for, for a while. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, this is the uh, normal or what passes normal. We are slowly getting our fixtures back on track, Scott. And we really also need to uh, brace ourselves because there's quite a few trips to Morton Daly Stadium coming as well. It is a great thing back to normal. So I will put my cricket notes and my tennis notes to one side. We'll focus on the football because it's great to have both sides back in action. And we do have plenty of trips to Morton Daly in the next 10 days. We certainly do. And I should also point out as well, I'll put my NFL playoffs notes to the side as well for the next couple of hours because that is actually dominated the last three days for me as well. Anyway, before we get into the show proper, we will do our usual plugs. This is Brisbane Football Review on Clutch Radio. If you want to get in touch with us, email brisbanefootballreview at gmail.com, Facebook, The Raw Review, Twitter at BNE Football. And if you want to get in touch or leave a podcast rating or review, it is available on A-League Live, Wooshka, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and a bunch of other good podcast providers. Now, you'd give us a few nervous moments on uh, Saturday evening when they took on Sydney FC down at Jubilee Stadium. But, unlike Wednesday night, they were able to score a goal, and that was good enough for a single point. Nicola Miliusnic's strike was enough to cancel out the opening goal of the match, which is in the run sheet as Elvis Cam Sober, but I'm pretty sure it was actually someone else. Cause it was Cassari, right? Cam yeah, Sober think... made that ridiculous run to set him up. Yes. He may, he may as well own the goal, given given the uh, the run he made. But, uh, yeah, it was Anthony Caceres who actually scored. There we go. See, I think that might be the first time in about a year and a half I haven't just Ron Burgundy'd whatever was in the machine as well. It's a nice so, bust you just backed over as well. I do what I can. Um, but, yes, overall, 1-1, one, one uh, one, one, a point for the Raw to get them well, another point higher up the standings on the A-League men's ladder and what was their first league match in 35 days or so and well, it was nice to see them get off the mark Adam. It was uh, yeah so they they doubled their points tally uh, in, in one fell swoop but yeah look I think it was on the um, on the surface it actually was I think probably the best that the Raw have played all season especially in the league um, and yeah like I said it was a total you now Total contrast to to Wednesday, where they seem to seem to be um, sort of a lot more conservative, a lot more sort of you know haphazard in the way they played. They actually came out in the first ten minutes and really took it to um, really took it to Sydney. And uh, yeah, look, it was a bit a bit of you know magic actually from Elvis Kemp sober that actually you know released you know Anthony Caceres to um, to the first goal. But uh, yeah, look, I think Raw overall, I think they would actually be pretty pleased with, with uh, one point um, from from Mestra um, Jubilee. It certainly seems like that FFA Cup tie, especially that first half, the Raw really used that to shake off a lot of the rust and they were better for it in this game. They were much better for it in this game. There was a lot more energy about them and you could really see that during the points. I thought, look, they, did, they didn't start the game particularly strongly again, but they got better and better as the game went on, and I do think they were well worth their point in the game. And it is a good point you make, James, that given everything they've been through, there was always going to be an element of rust, and then we actually saw that with the substitutions as well, the fact that three or four players who you would have thought would have been in Brisbane's best, and they had to come on. They came on in a bunch, well, didn't they? They brought on was it Brown, Hingott, and Akbari just at the start of the second half, so... Clearly, there's still a management issue there as well, but they're building back in. And I thought for a, for a first-up form in the league for in about a month, I thought it was a really good performance and something they can build upon. Because Sydney are playing quite well at the moment as well. So, And they haven't had a lot of these issues to deal with. They've always been able to find an opponent to play in the last month. So while well, the Roar and a couple of other teams have been 
out of action. They've been playing consistently, so for the Raw to be able to match them in their first game back, I think it's a big feather in their cap. It really is, and it was an unchanged starting eleven as well for the Raw, so we did get to see Louis Zabala at right back, and that, you know, it, what it does make me nervous seeing him there because he is nominally a central midfielder in the NPL side, but he did appear to be better for it, and I suppose also, somewhat encouragingly, is the fact that um, he had shaken off whatever was ailing him on uh, Wednesday evening. Yeah, it was, um, again, we sort of questioned why is he playing right back? He's notionally a uh, midfielder, but uh, he's actually proving to be actually, you know, very, very versatile in that right back role. Um, another solid game. Uh, and yeah, like I said, you know, his first league, his first league start to go with his, uh, his first sort of professional start, you know, 72 hours prior to that, um, yeah, all, all is well for Luis Abala. That's quite interesting. There's a random stat here, James, that isn't in the run sheet, but Luis Zabala is the 13th debutant out of 26 that Warren Moon has given a, a debut to, who's going to come from the NPL or the Raw Academy. So there's certainly been a pathway for those players. And I thought Luis Zabala did really well once again at right back. Maybe, I don't even think, the, I know the goal came down his side, but I don't think he was necessarily at fault. Because it was, he was pushed further forward on an overlapping run and there was a transition the other way. So I don't think he was at fault for the goal necessarily, but I think he did quite well over there at right back in what is, as we said last week, an unnatural position for him. Yeah, it, it was a you know very impressive effort, but what actually surprised me the most about it was just the way that like the Raw structured their bench. There was Jack Hingett there and he played 30-odd minutes, but you also had Corey Brown and Josh Brindle South, which made for essentially three fullbacks on the bench. Now, Again, I'm assuming this is totally guesswork on my part, so if it's incorrect, don't blame me. But, um, yeah, I, it does seem like the players actually had, um, you know, were doing it mostly because of uh, conditioning issues. And uh, this is something that Warren Moon spoke about in his um, press conference after the match. So let's hear from what he had to say there. Well, we haven't trained. I think that's the key for us. I think from the 24th of December through to the 2nd of January, uh, not one of our players kicked the ball. We were in uh, isolation, and, and and our government stated that we were all close contacts. So um, we didn't have players available until I think the earliest, the second or the third of January, to train. Uh, and we were following the APL protocols at the time, which meant that we couldn't do full training. So um, I'm really proud of this group because you know there were players out there tonight that have had one or two sessions. Um, and they haven't been full training sessions and performed the way they did. So, for me, really pleased. Uh, we staggered in the way we came back. We had some come out of isolation a bit later, you know, like Jack Hingott, uh, Corey Brown, and uh, Luke Ivanovic, Ramadik Bari. They've only just come out. So, um, so we've only really had a smallest group where we've been able to get work into them. And I think that's why you've seen, you know, good young players stepping up, like Louis Zabala came in, Nick Olsen's come in and done well, Eli Adams has come in and done well, because they've been a part of our group since the third. And they're the ones we've been able to get the work into. I'm guessing that probably reflected in how early you're making substitutions, right? It's just getting those guys and keeping guys fresh, right? Because I think you made five straight after half time. Yeah, I did. Look, that's right. I'm a COVID coach. That's what I am. I'm uh, <laughs> right now. We make subs not based on the game, you know. And if anyone criticises me making subs tonight, they were subs purely on who could go further and who couldn't. So. Um, those first three were, were necessary and um, we hope the boys that came on had an impact and they did and uh, you know but I, I really can't criticise any one of my boys tonight because some have just actually put their hands up to play for this club under real adversity so uh, very pleased with their efforts and that was Warren Moon after the match Scott? Yeah just said that he had to make the changes purely out of out of the fact that the players weren't able to play the full 90 minutes, obviously he brought on Luke Ivanovic there, and unfortunately, it looks like he's gone down as well now. So the juggling act is going to continue for him. But it's, it's, you can imagine how difficult it would be, James, to to have a skeleton squad for a couple of weeks and then having players come back gradually because you don't know when the players are going to come back either in terms of when they're not just back into training, but when they're actually going to be 100% ready to contribute for sustained periods of time. So I think it's a real management act and... I thought they did quite well with it. I Yeah, I can't really argue too much. And you've got to remember as well, Adam, this was a pretty uh, threadbare squad in terms of, that was going to lean on its young players already at the start of the season. 
Yeah, I think you know, on the on the fact that there, that there's picked three fullbacks on the bench, I don't think that was by design. That's a case of he. I think they literally had only you know you know that amount of subs, and they, that's your best best place to fit. But um, but yeah, look, and also as well, and the one thing we've got to take into account is that those players, if there are any of those players who actually um actually test positive to COVID nineteen, and as, as sort of it was mentioned by Rahayan Grant. Um, when uh, and he's probably the highest profile um, player to have caught COVID nineteen. It it takes more than just you know, uh, you know, testing negative again. You know, at the end of the incubation cycle to be back to full fitness. The, the obviously we don't know enough about the virus about how it affects you know a, a standard person, much less you know a you know, professional athlete and their performance levels. You know, and their their phys- physical levels. So it might be players that if if there are players that have actually test the positive and were affected by it. Um, I don't know if you can actually put them in the category of how long they'll be fully fit, because I don't think they'll be fully fit yet. It might be a couple of weeks. Apparently, Grant is only just become, is only feeling 100% now, and he contracted it in, um, in early December. And this is one of those things you can learn about from not just uh, watching the A-Leagues, but also some of the uh, competitions overseas. Like Again, I would just go down my... Uh, alley here and talk about the NFL and hearing like players that, you know, will test out of the COVID protocols, um, you know, on a, in the space of a week, but then when it comes to playing their next game, they're struggling after, you know, a handful of plays. And that is, you know, one of those unfortunate, you know, things that is going to be the case um, and dealing with a virus that for some reason, some people still think isn't that serious, despite what, you know, common sense and logic would dictate. But, you know, that's why they're not allowed to the stadiums. You could probably have some insight here, James, because you do some some running, you do some marathon running all the rest of it. You've had, whenever you've been sick and you've tried to get straight back into it, it must be incredibly difficult just to build back to where you were. And that's what the, all the players that have come down with are trying to do, to get, get back to where they were, which I imagine takes a lot of time. It's not just something you do in two days. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm an asthmatic and I've had, you know, chest colds and whatnot, so not exactly... Uh, COVID, not exactly on the same level as what a COVID infection can bring, but it's definitely not good. And yeah, you're right. It isn't just a case of you know dealing with it for a few days and then getting back into it and going and running for two hours. It's it is a gradual process. So yeah, I, I, it is something that you know is put, probably putting a lot of strain on several medical departments um, at a lot of sporting clubs at the moment because yeah. I, it did all. It did raise one interesting thing um, as well, just in terms of this squad makeup. And it's a question I asked you guys on Saturday, but I'll bring it on to the show now. I've got a feeling that Jack Hingott's future may follow that similar sort of path of Scott Neville, in that I can see him extending his career by another couple of years beyond what whatever its end date may be, if he is able to convert into a centre back. Scott, what do you think? Possibly. It could work. He'd be a, he'd be a very short centre back, but it could work. I mean, it's interesting. I'm not sure it would work with both he and Neville. I don't think it would only be one or the other in that central defensive position. But it's, it could be a path that he falls. It also could very well be that he's he's struggling to come back from. I don't know if he came down with COVID or not, but it may well be that he's starting to come back from either an injury or something. So that might be a part of it as well. But possibly down the road in a year or two, he may very well be able to convert himself into a central defender and prolong his career. I don't know. That's just something that popped into my mind, Adam. Yeah, look, we've seen it. We've seen it with uh, like players. You know, we're talking sort of you know, you know, at a higher level. You know, Australian. You know, Lucas Neal did that, where he he was he was for for a very long time a a a right back. And then he became, you know, one of one of Australia's sort of, you know, especially in the modern era, one of Australia's better um, central defenders. So th- there's every chance that maybe that he's that he's considering, or maybe it's a case of, you know, his versatility coming through because we do know not only can he play right back, which I feel, you know, for his entire career has probably been his best position, but he, we have seen him play at left back, and I'm sure playing in that central, you know, the centre back. Back role would um wouldn't be too much a, a stretch as well, especially in a in a back three. Well, we saw him do that last year as well. There was a game where I want to say Gillespie was suspended, Aldred was injured, and there may have been another health issue here or there. And Hing had actually had to wind up playing alongside I want to say Kai Truen and Jordan Courtney Perkins, and 
Yeah, I thought, and that was a, one of those games where the back line, you know, held it, acquitted itself quite well. So that is just something that I, yeah, was thinking about because if Neville or Truen was to get hurt in that game, I feel like he would have been the player that they called upon to go in and, uh, you know, try and plug the hole, even though it's not his natural role. Talking about the rest of the squad, though, and uh, we will keep moving on this as best as we can. Juan Moscano. Mm. I'm not. He, he did start a little bit of debate on Saturday night in terms of where he sits. Now, I I agree he hasn't really been that great to date, but I am also willing to give him a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, knowing full well that he played in the FFA Cup uh, in a brief substitute role, got injured, came back, he worked his way back to fitness then had this COVID break. I don't think he's really had what you would consider to be a smooth uh, start to his Brisbane Raw career. And also, we've discussed the issues that the midfield has had as well. And, you know, ask any striker, they're only as good as a service they're receiving. So, Scott, what are you thinking about uh, the Raw's import striker so far? Well, first, go ask Cristiano Ronaldo about what it's like to feed off scraps as a centre forward, because he'll tell you all about that. So I think the same problem is Trevor. I think with Lascano, I think you, you nailed it. He's had a good impact appearance off the bench. He had, a, and he had a long inj- long-term injury or an eight, eight, ten-week injury, whatever it was, through the rest of the preseason. Came back, played a couple of games when he probably was just regaining some fitness, and had this break. And like a couple of old players in the squad, who I've been a bit critical of some of the other players brought in, you've always got to give them a pass now and then judge them over the next four to five weeks as they build up some consistent match play, James, because they haven't had that really so far this season. They have the opportunity to play four or five games in a sustained period of time to build up that match fitness, match sharpness and cohesion. And I think as we start to see that, we will hopefully see a better version of Juan Lascano than we have so far. I thought he worked hard on, on Saturday night, which shows you that the effort is there. He's putting himself about. It's maybe not quite clicking yet, but I'd say give it a couple of weeks before you pass any serious judgment on him or any of the other new players at this point. And that's where I keep landing on all of this as well, is the fact that he's basically come in and I, I, I'm, I wish I knew you know what his level of English was, but it feels like the communication isn't there as well, because especially when uh, you're watching the Raw try and attack down what was the far side to the camera and you could see him making his runs in the box, he was making runs they just weren't always to where the attacker was putting the cross. And there were, it wasn't a case of he was making a run, you know, to the near post all the time. Yeah. It was a case of he was seeing something and the person putting that's in the, the cross. That's the cohesion thing, isn't it? They're not on the same wavelength yet. And on that as well, that's where I keep looking, uh, coming back and going, um, you know, maybe the raw, this is where you might be seeing some of these COVID protocol restrictions um, coming in where they're not training as well. I think uh, Moon said something about not being able to get together for almost a week and a half from like uh, December 24 to January 2nd or something. I may have been imagining that. But either way, times where they're not able to train together, they're not able to get to know each other and work on these sorts of things. Adam, but that surely has to be impacting uh, just the ability to get to know your teammates. Yeah, and I think that's fundamentally what it comes down to is that you can tell you can tell that you know in the way he moves, the way the sort of the routes he runs and and, and whatnot, you can tell he's a player has experience and know and knows what he's doing. He's not he's not exactly running out there like a headless chook. Um, I think it's come down to he's not doesn't seem to be on the same wavelength as his teammates. And, and I think that's, I think that's where at the moment, the jury is still out on whether he is a fit for the, for the raw side at the moment. We may know, we may know the answer or start to be getting an answer and a more clear judgment about 10 days time when the raw play this set of three games at home. Cause if they can't now, you know, start to figure out, okay, we need to continue work on the communication. Um, especially with the, the, with the, it looks like that Luke Ivanovich is going to be out with, out with injury. So I think he's going to get, you know, pretty much the first crack at that, uh, that uh, number nine role. Uh, he's, he's, they're going to have to work it out. And um, he, yeah, I think the best thing he did, I saw he pretty much did on, um, on Saturday night was when he put Ben Walland into the, um, into the, uh, <laughs> the uh, cameraman and the uh, halfway. So, 
which was all legal. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, look, he, you can tell the signs that, that he is a good, he's a quality player for this level. It's just yeah, it's just not, um, it's just not meshing at the moment. I think the comparisons to some of the other duds at the raw of a raw import strikers uh, in the past, I think it's a little bit premature if, if you ask me. Oh, well and truly. And, you know, Warren Moon was discussing uh, Liscano as well. So, uh, Scott, you clipped up uh, this. So why don't we hear what Moon had to say about Juan Liscano? It's early days for Juan. I think, uh, you know, this might not be common knowledge, but he missed eight weeks of our preseason due to a serious injury. So, you know, <clears throat> Juan's now fit and we need to use him. So he's getting his preseason right now in the A-League. And, and he'll be judged on that, I've got no doubt. And I know that there were probably... There's lack of sharpness in what he's doing, but there's also good things. He's a good player, uh, and I think uh, we'll see the best of him probably in the next five, six games. You know, you'll start to see him get some actual proper match fitness um, and show us what his qualities are, because we see it in training. We know he's underdone, but again, he's another one that uh, was in that small group that trained through this period, so, so we had no choice but to use him. And that was the boss on his striker as well. And just thinking back to that cohesion as well, you guys have worked in teams before. It is all about just picking up those little intricacies, like, for instance, learning, okay, you know, Parsons always loves to shoot, for instance. So for him, making the right run in that situation might be, you know, preparing for a shot that might get parried for him to pounce on the rebound, whereas, you know, if it's Jay O'Shea on the ball, he knows, all right, he's going to try and dink it in to a certain point. And it's just that, time together that they just haven't been afforded yet so yeah that's basically where you kind of hope it is going to improve and this stop start uh, early part of the season is going to hopefully now pave way to just getting to play and you can't really build upon that in training either James that stuff has to be built out on the field in terms of when like for example I played a bit of time in centre field and left back and I focused on my time playing at left back you've you can't work out what the left wing is going to do in training. You've got to wait and see in the game, should I go forward this time or not? So it's, you've got to get the feel for these things in the game. And so what I'm saying is this combination stuff in the front though with Lascano, you can't really work on that too much in training. It's got to be in the game. What sort of movements is he making? What sort of movements is the players around him making and trying to get on the same wavelength? So it's got to be in game. So I think that's where I think Adam, you said it's going to, the next three games is going to be a great opportunity to see. I agree. I think these three games here, by the end of the full time in the game next Saturday night at Morton Daly Stadium, we should start to have a really clear picture or a clearer picture of how that forward line is com- combining. So I think the the discussion around him is is valid, but probably just park it for a couple of weeks. I also think as well that um, also, as we alluded to earlier, I think the midfield service needs to be a lot better and all that. And uh, and I think it starts with the captain, um, so James, John, Jay O'Shea. Uh, you got a couple of names on, on the coverage. Jim other O'Shea, night. I think his name is now. He's changed <laughs> yeah. it again. But uh, yeah, him, him, and uh, yeah, and Jesse Daly and Matthew Steinman, whichever combination that is going to be, um, they, they, they also as well need to need to figure out you know, what's the best plan of attack going forward because um yeah like I said as we said at the top of the top of this discussion um your, your strikers ain't as good as the service he gets and look I think for the most part I think the service from the midfield has been I uh, think to, to be kind average at best yeah uh no argument about that as well although I will say I know Scott you were ready to um send uh Maddie Steinman out to Holland Park Hawks after a couple of games this season, but I feel like he's growing into his role. He's getting, his passing still isn't what you might hope from someone in that position, but he's getting stronger defensively as well. He's proving to be a much stronger tackler than the Roar have had there, in my mind, in the last few years. That's two buses thrown around there today. I appreciate that very much, but you're right. Like I said earlier, like I said earlier, there are a couple of players who I've been a bit, had a couple of questions over, but you've almost got to park that now, given the disruption that the team found. I do, I do agree with that. I thought he was better on Saturday night in that role. And hopefully, we, if he's going to fulfill that role in the next two or three games, we'll see it build and build and build. But you've almost got to just give everyone a clean slate now and say, right, given everything, everything that's happened has been problematic, to say the least. So now that hopefully the problems are behind them as a squad and they can build for the rest of the season, let's see what they can do now with regular, consistent game time under their belt. And I do think on Saturday, um, Steinman was better. And hopefully you can continue to build on it. 
yeah, that's pretty much where I keep uh, landing as well. And we will wrap up our A-League men's recap uh, with you, Scott. You've got to do the player of the year voting. Oh, yes, I do too. Okay, so three votes for Alex Parsons, two for Milosic for his goal, and one for Kai Truen, who continues to impress at the back. Yep, there we go. You thought I was going to ask something much more complicated than that, didn't you? I did, I did actually. Uh, well, I'll throw, I'll throw you a uh, softball when, while we're at it. Um, what do Stuart McLaren and Ange Postacoglu have in common? Coaches. Hand just down, boss. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Congratulations, Stu. He's done a really good job over there in Scotland. I think he was in their national team setup, wasn't he, for a while as a as a, in a junior coaching role. So obviously highly thought of over there, and it's a great opportunity for him now to go to what is probably one of the. I think it's the biggest club in Scotland, but one of the two anyway. So it's it's a great move for him, and congratulations to him. Yeah, I did see it suggested in uh, some comment section that he was actually a Boyhood Rangers fan, so I hope that doesn't get brought up too much. Yeah, whoever mentioned that, I hope they realised that uh, you may you may have uh, just uh, set him up for one great big fall. For sure. Wasn't anyway. it, was it Kenny Miller who swapped famously from Celtic to Rangers or vice versa? So it has yeah. been done, although maybe not necessarily by either side, but it has been done. You don't, you don't, um, you don't recommend it. That's for sure. I do remember something yeah. Eric Parley said when he was playing over in Scotland. They he asked, he said, "Two new sports, other Rangers." Like, nah, mate, I don't, I don't follow football at all. That was the advice. He said, just, <laughs> I, don't I don't follow football. I, I see. I feel like the uh, correct answer would have been whichever club I'm playing for. Anyway, I could go down a massive rabbit hole in terms of uh, athlete supporting teams, but instead. Let's move on to the A-League women's. And it started off as what could have been a very, very, very rough Sunday for me in multiple factors. But thanks to a little bit of a rally, the uh, Raw were at least able to produce a satisfactory result, unlike a certain NFL team based out in Massachusetts. But uh, that rant will be going on another podcast, I'm sure. It was a 3-2 Tune win. Tune into the and, Boston uh, Football Review coming soon. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, before I lose my concentration, it was the Round 7 A-League women's and uh, goals from Mariel Heckert, Larissa Crummer, and a penalty from Katrina Gorey for a much, much-needed win in a game that was a lot closer than I was expecting it to be, largely because Lily Alfield was just unbelievably good. Now, I do want to uh, make two quick points before we get into the uh, discussion of the game itself. Firstly... Um, I will give my player of the year votes at the end of the thing, but uh, if we were allowed to, Alfield would have probably received all three points uh, because, for me, she was the best player on the pitch by a very, very, very long way. Secondly, the star, the second star of the game was actually Daniel Garb, who uh, did what I think the three of us all agree was an absolutely remarkable job commentating on basically an hour's notice. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I sort of I tweet out my praise for Daniel Garbang and great skill as well. I thought they both did a very, very good job, um, apparently on very, very short notice. And uh, and yeah, look, uh, as you know, James, uh, yeah, commentary is a tough gig at best of times, but to have an hour's notice, you know, that that's a that's a pretty good effort. Yeah, I think my record is well, my shortest notice is about five or six hours, and that was an absolute nightmare as well. So once again, like just unbelievable effort from both of them, actually. It was, and I would have given three to Lily Oldfield, two to Daniel Garb and one to Grace Gill, if we could possibly do that, James, but I do agree to both those things. On the game itself, it kind of played out in the way that we all kind of feared it might if the Raw didn't take their chances. And look, we've got to give credit to Wellington. They did play better than they have for the rest of the season, but for the first 20, 25 minutes, I thought the Raw weren't at the races at all. And, it wasn't until they got the goal back through Mariel Hecke you started to see a bit of a bit of life come back into them. I do think the two changes that Gareth made at halftime really did spark things quite nicely with Tatham and Cannon Clough coming on down that right hand side, and it just just saw them get a bit more balance down that right hand side and a bit more drive through the middle of the midfield with Hecker moving inside, and it just started to look a lot better. And they were well worth the win in the end, but for 20, 25 minutes, I was getting ready to come on here and and go off on a bit of a rant at how disappointing it is because 
the first 20 minutes wasn't good enough, was it? And as good as Wellington um, were at taking their chances early on, the Raw were just, they didn't look like they were ready to play at all. And I think it did kind of show with the fact that they got the penalty in the 15th minute and it was a stone stonewall penalty. And then, yeah, there was, according to the Twitter at BNE Football, um, three follow-ups from Gori, Nori and Nori again were all blocked. The last one I actually think was fired straight into the back of Mariel Hecker as well. And then before you knew it, it was you know, four minutes later, Wellington had the opening goal and couldn't really begrudge them that based on the way that they'd started. Yeah, um, poor. That, it, it seemed like that, that missed penalty of Larissa Crummer's uh, save penalty. Save penalty. Sorry, you're right. Save penalty. Waiting uh, <laughs> for that. In space of quick succession for Lily Outfield, and that seemed to have almost the heads almost dropped immediately for Roy. It almost it almost like it was like resignations. Oh, here we go again, another one of these days. And then um, young Alyssa Winham's uh, goal, which was a great goal. Um, a great goal, and no, so the her reaction was just priceless. I think anyone that you know saw that reaction, I think they get joy watching you know, young players score their first professional goal, and then and then the goal they gave up to Grace Jow after that when they're two 0 down. Yeah, I I know I tweeted and I put the first one my hand up and said that this is a disaster because like I said we we thought going to this game that. Raw should have really easily dispensed Wellington. But look, credit where it's due to Wellington. They're, I think they're a bit better than what, what we gave them credit for um, in previous weeks. I know I've, I've been fairly, um, not scathing, but I've been very cynical of them. And I thought that Raw would absolutely go scorch earth them. They really put up a fight. So congratulations to them. Um, look, Mariel Hecker, I thought was was uh, brilliant. She, she won the penalty in the first half. She got the goal back in the second half. I thought she... She uh, was the uh, the driving engine. Katrina Gorey as well. Like she actually, for the first time since she came back, she did not look happy. And she's gone from being a um, good player at this level, James, to that next level again, where she's looking like a game breaker player at this A League women's level. We know that's what she is at the NPL level, but we're starting to see that from Marielle now at this A League women's level, and it's absolutely great to see because we know she's got that talent. I agree with Adam that She was by far and away the best player on the park on Sunday afternoon in an orange shirt, anyway. Yeah, I, you know, I'm sure Gareth would have uh, given them some form of uh, rev up speech at half time. It would have been nice if Bill Belichick was able to do that to his team. But um, yeah, but I also get the feeling. That, uh, yeah, I get the feeling that Hecker probably would have been one of those players that actually like got up. If, if I found out she got up at half time and said, "Guys, you know, this sucks. We need to do a lot better than this," it would not surprise me in the least. And, you know, it was really was a case of her leading by example and just deciding, no, the Raw aren't losing this game. But on, you know, the efforts of um, Gemma Lewis and the Wellington Phoenix, I think what you are seeing is the growth of a squad that is still, what, half a dozen games old, if that. So you are seeing, you know, decide that he's growing in confidence. Losing in that manner obviously would have been a huge blow for them. But it does, it is going to be a nice reminder that you will need to show up and be ready to play when you take them on because if not, they've got the ability to, you know, really mess with other teams. And what we hope will turn out to be a uh, very congested race to the finals, it might turn into something that, uh, you know, they get the chance to play spoiler for someone because there is still, you know, a fair bit of uh, football to go. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing is that, yeah, Wellington, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd almost forgive them, you know, you know, a five-game losing streak, you know, like I said, they copped a couple of hides, you know, they've had, they've had their sort of their, their moment of notoriety at the start and, you know, and they pretty much turn up and be roadkill for, for their opponents. But the fact that they, they showed some heart, they showed, they showed some, um, you know, tenacity and really took it to the raw. They, they forced the raw to have to dig deep and actually show up and actually, you know, play. And look, I don't know if I'm completely out of school saying that, you know, maybe the Raw came into this game pretty much the same way as we were talking uh, on the show last Wednesday and expecting just to show up and win. Um, because it just seemed like that the first 20 minutes or so, it had that feeling of, you know, just show up, just do the, do the, do the bare minimum, and they should eventually, that they'll, they'll outlast Wellington and eventually, you know, get past them. And look, that's what happened in the end. 
that they re- that their best players had to step up. You know, when I'm talking about the likes of, you know, of you know, Mariel Hecker, you know, Katrina Gori, Aisha Nori, they had to step up and actually play play to their best to try and to get over to to get over the um the hump. But I, I did hear that, you know, there were predictions by certain experts that oh they claim that Wellington will probably win the league in the next five years. Oh, I don't know about that. But uh but look I will I will say that you know what, I think they I think their win their maiden win is not too far away. I think if they if they play without playing the spirit they have they did on Sunday, I think it's not too far away. Yeah, for sure, and that's going to like if they can just finish the games. You know, it's kind of like what we were talking about with the Roar after their two Perth games at the start of the year. Um, is just say that yeah, they've got um, a little bit of a they've just got to, to close out the games. Now um, I've just sent you to a Facebook message as well, and I'll just give it a quick plug here as well. My day job, obviously, um, with NT in Australia, we are doing the uh, Australian football stories as well. And if you want to see a really good um, interview that Garb did with the Wellington Phoenix women's side, that is available on the uh, Ned's Facebook page from, I want to say, December 23. Just talking about what they're going through setting up um, a brand new side in the A-League women. Oh, and just for the added layer of difficulty, playing in a different country in what is still an ongoing pandemic. So just making life a little bit tougher for them as well. Just an added extra challenge there for them. But I do think they really set themselves for this game as well, James. And for 45 minutes, it looked like it was going to be their day. They were playing really, really well. I do hope that they can take the positives and the confidence from that for the rest of their season because there's a lot there for them to work with with Gemma Lewis and that squad. So I hope they're able to do that and not just look at it as another disappointing defeat because, again, for 45 minutes, they were were very, very impressive for a start-up side. And I know they had Adam sweating, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it was uh very nervous but in the end the raw were able to get home now um i will do the player of the year votes as well while i re- remember because it re- is going to lead on to the last discussion point for this game as well three points mariel hecker two points katrina gory one point cannon cloth um actually two discussion points quickly um katrina gory saw she posted uh afterwards talking about uh, her unsuccessful penalty in the Rio Olympics, and she wanted to try and build uh, build back from that as well. So it was good seeing her step up with the pressure on. Um, and Cannon Cloth, nominally a fullback and occasionally a centre-back for Lions for pretty much her entire NPL career. I remember, you know, basically every time I asked Rob Askew about her in the uh, first season and a bit of her careers, you know, he wanted her to you know, really attack more, keep pushing forward and use those attacking instincts. So is Gareth McPherson uh, doing exactly the same thing by playing her as an out-and-out winger? Firstly, on Katrina Gorey, it actually reminds me of Matt Mackay in the grand final when he said, I've got to step up and take this penalty. I think Katrina did the same thing. So like, we've missed, we've had one saved, I'll not score one in this game. I've been a senior player, I have to step up. I think that's the same mindset. But with Katrina Clough, I completely agree. Moving her to that right wing role, James, it allows her to play the game in the way that she knows how to play it best in terms of on the front foot, getting forward and trying to create things in the front third. And it removes a bit of the defensive responsibility from her and allows her to play that role. I think it's a shrewd move from Gareth and it's working quite well so far. Yeah. And at NPL NPL level, we've seen she's quite a strong defender as well. So it is nice having, I suppose, a another cover all option on that uh, on either side, the right or the left. Yeah, um, I think obviously as well you can you can tackle freedom. You know, in as as I think that line that Super Lions side of the last two seasons has shown in the MPL Queensland, you can be a bit right back in the attack with almost freedom. And I think some some of the positions she actually ended up in uh, in attacking moves for Lions and their 100 and something goals they scored during the season would actually suggest that she probably uh, is a natural winger as well. So but I think maybe that might be her true calling. That you know I think as as a you know more as an attacker who can actually also defend at a fairly decent level. Uh, and yeah, on that as well, you know, did also help when you know that lion side was essentially playing about a two-three-five formation uh, at times. But yeah, they weren't doing a lot of defending, were they? No, really not. They were just that good. Um, yeah. Anyway, 
So that was the way the Raw A-League women's side picked up their second victory of the season. I'm saying right now, the only thing that is really going to potentially come back and bite them in terms of chasing for chasing a finals match is the fact that they've played seven matches and just about everyone around, and actually everyone else in the competition, say for Wellington and Sydney, have all played five or six. So they don't have the luxury of games in hand. So that does just make their life a little bit tougher. However, there is a lot more to go. Uh, we did discuss, we'll move on to the news now. Uh, we did discuss A-League expansion, men's and women's. And uh, Dave Lewis has a story on FTBL. You know, take note of the author uh, there. Uh, Football Australia Chief James Johnson has confirmed the long-anticipated national second tier is primed to sprout in 2023. Now, in the interest of time and... Uh, not keeping you all too busy because you're probably listening to this working from home. So get back to your job and keep playing the podcast in the background. We uh, discussed some of our expansion candidates for uh, places in Southeast Queensland. Uh, I'd say that is largely the same for the uh, national second division or national second league NSL for short. The one question I would uh, make, uh, ask you guys as well, start with you, Scott. There's a bit of a revamp going on at Ballymore right now. Do you think there's a, a, any teams that might be eyeing off playing their games there, be it A-League or National Second League? I think there's a couple. I think there's one just across the creek who would, who previously, when they put together an A-League expansion bid, did float the idea that they may play their home games at Ballymore. I'm sure they that they still are an ambitious football club. We've seen their resurgence and... I wouldn't be at all surprised if they were looking at it once again. And I also think that Brisbane Raw will also be very closely looking at the idea of moving back into the city of Brisbane, if it's at all fire, financially viable for them to do so, to play at Ballymore. It remains to be seen if the, if they do, but I think they're the two. And maybe, I don't know if the if strikers have any ambition, if they would ever leave Parc de Paris to do it, but certainly Brisbane City and Brisbane Raw, I can see, Having some strong interest in playing at Ballymore if that does when that does get built. Adam, yeah, look, I I think it's down similar lines that uh, that yeah, look, uh, Ballymore does all of a sudden become a yeah a prime bit of real estate as far as you know a rectangular stadium that is within the which that's within sort of you know stone throw of the CBD, which seems to be the only criteria that some fans seem to be interested in going to supporting the Raw. So um, if that, if that's what what it takes to get people to the games for the Raw, maybe that's where that financial viability would come in. Uh, definitely, you'd think that you know if Brisbane City were to um, were to decide that you know they were going to make a play at the national second second division that that also be a um that you know they'd be interested but um yeah look then again it could be a case of it'd be used for rugby and that's it so and obviously for the olympic um olympics coming up in 2032 i'll let you cover the rugby angle of it in a minute james but it is also worth pointing out it's only going to be a one-sided stadium right it's only going to be one grandstand on that eastern side so no grandstand at either end and the western side i think is going to be largely a training and commercial hub for rugby queensland so it, it, does, it looks good on paper, the idea of Ballymore, 10,000-seat stadium, all the rest of it, but it's one grandstand, and it might not be all that it's all that it seems. So if, if the Raw go there, for example, in the A-League, they're going to have to put some sort of seating at either end. Because I, well, I don't think with one grandstand it is viable, but they'll have to do more to it. Well, that's actually what I was going to uh, come up with uh, next, is I get, from what I've seen of the uh, plans for Ballymore is the fact that it sounds like the capacity for that ground is only going to be about 3,000 people or so, which isn't enough, not just for an A-League side, it's also not enough for a Super Rugby team as well, because the Reds, especially because they're winning at the moment, are going to be getting more and more people to the games. And, yeah, I don't think this is going to be the fix-it-all venue that we might be hoping it's going to be. However, my biggest issue with it is the fact that the state, the stand that is getting built, I believe, is going to be a uh, on the eastern side of the ground. So it's going to be looking into the sun for any afternoon games you've got there. And we, and I know the uh, Queensland Premier Rugby had its grand final at Suncorp Stadium this year, but generally speaking, uh, in the past they've had their semis and grand finals at Ballymore, which does beg the question: 
surely they're looking at a return to Ballymore, which is, you know, the spiritual home of rugby union here in southeast Queensland. And if they are trying to eventually try and lease it out as a multi-use venue, then you are going to need more than 3,000 people because and this is a question I actually wouldn't mind running on our socials if one of us remembers to post it in the next couple of days and something we can probably get into a bit more detail on on a later episode. If the Raw are playing at a stadium like, say, you know, the updated Ballymore with a capacity of 3,000 or Parc de Paris where the capacity might be 4,000, how happy do you think fans would be finding out that they basically got to get season tickets to guarantee the ability to go to these games. Because mm. like one of the things we always hear about is the prohibitive cost of getting season tickets. And that does also, you know, again, without going too far down the rabbit hole, it feels like it is going to make it a much tougher assignment for a lot of the fans that already have so many excuses for not going to games anyway. It's a very good point. We might put that out to our listeners on our social and see what they have to say about it. So I think it is a very interesting discussion. One quick question, James. They are building it up for the Olympics, right, to about 12,000, 15,000 temporary seating for the hockey, correct? I would assume so, yeah. So that's, it is possible. But the other thing is, this would be another case of football once again piggybacking off another sport's infrastructure and development instead of having their own. And I think we would all love to see football have their own, but it just seems like it's not... not on the agenda at the moment, is it? And that's that's where the frustration here is. Every time another sport comes up with a nice little boutique venue, football tries to piggyback on the back of it. We saw the, the great work that Dolphins have done up there at Dolphins. They had to build that up to being a 15-10-seat boutique setting where they may or may not host some rugby league NRL games in the next couple of years. Now, now we're talking about Ballymore being done up to a boutique level for potentially the Reds, but probably more, more that second level of rugby. And, and football trying to move back in on that. So at some and point, we've got to get w. our own infrastructure, haven't we? Yeah, well, I completely agree. Like That above all else needs to be the point. And, you know, we're not for the, uh, I would say, issues between the strikers and the roar, especially surrounding the latter's entrance into the A-League over the former. Every park would have been the perfect opportunity for it because, yes, you still have the PCYC in the gym there, but... You've got all that land that could very easily be turned into, you know, an admin base or a functional stadium. And, you know, spoiler alert, I'm going to say if you have a stadium that's only in a city stadium that's only capped at, say, 10,000 people, like you could probably build Parc de Paris up to, all of a sudden you're creating a much bigger demand for tickets because all the people who continually claim that they don't go to the games at Redcliffe because it's too far, but would happily go if they were playing at Bowen Hills, well, then you've got a real opportunity where they might find themselves closed out of a lot of those games solely because they weren't organised enough to get season tickets. So it, it does raise all sorts of logistical questions, and it would be very interesting to hear how they would uh, fall on that spectrum. Well, that was always the hope about moving to uh, Morton Daly Stadium. Is that uh, the whole scenario of of that? You know, that there'd be more there'd be more sort of you know season ticket holders than what capacity is. But so far, and it, given in this day and age, it doesn't look likely that you know that's that's going to happen. You know, basically, like I said, if you worked on the you know, the, the previous numbers that they were drawing at um, at Suncorp Stadium, even in the bad old days, almost that. Um, Morton Day Stadium's capacity should have been over, over been oversubscribed. Where you had that point where season ticket holes only, and the way and to get no match day tickets on the day was going to be scarce, scarce as their hen's teeth. So that, that obviously hasn't um, happened. Obviously, I think because there's been obviously the, the forces out there that you know have sort of really said, oh, we don't want to um, travel all that way. It's sort of, you know, it's really sort of taken hold. But um, yeah, you would have thought this would have happened, you know, with um, Morton Daly Stadium. So uh, look, I, I think that there is some truth in it now after seeing for two years that I think there is a reluctance to travel all the way out there and um, that maybe the next move for the Raw, if there is one, is back into Brisbane. I think the whole the whole line of oh, the Brisbane Raw don't really identify the city of Brisbane if you're playing out at, at Redcliffe and training on the Gold Coast. But, you know, 
again, it's, it's all supportive. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see sort of what happens. But it is concerning that that football, once again, as to Scott's point, has to piggyback off another sport just to try and stay relevant as far as, you know, in terms of infrastructure. And that's exactly, and that's where they really have dropped the ball in the last couple of years, not knowing what was coming and doing everything they could to get involved in it as well. But, you know, this is one area where you have to give credit to the Wanderers as well, because when they started, they were playing out of Parramatta, which I think was about a 16,000, 17,000 capacity stadium. And, you know, because they were doing well, it did attract that hangers-on uh, portion of the fan base. But it also meant that most, I think most of the games in the first couple of years turned out to be sellouts of that smaller venue. And it created that urgency to get in early and get a guaranteed ticket. And it also forced the government down there to actually upgrade that stadium because that was not on the agenda until Western Sydney Wanderers came about because Parramatta Reels and the NRL were not filling that stadium consistently and there was no talk that that was going to be renovated. So it probably looked exactly the same as it did 10 years ago if the Wanderers didn't exist. So not only that, but they've they created the case for it. So I think, again, it's just another example of what's going on. Okay, we said we weren't going to go too far down the rabbit hole on that, but we did. Yeah, dig up. <laughs> oh, I'll try. There have been a few. Can I have a shovel? <laughs> no, I think Michael Caine's using all those shovels at the moment. Now, <laughs> uh, that. I, couldn't, I couldn't resist. Now, the uh, Women's Asian Cup gets underway uh, in a couple of days as well. So we will quickly uh, just have a bit of a discussion on I suppose what we're expecting from the tournament, we have um, brought it up here and there as well in terms of what the raw involvement is. But from Matilda's perspective, Adam, what's the pass mark for you? Ah, look for me, the pass mark is winning it. Uh, that, that, that I think, uh, like I said, I'm they are all in on this. So they they need to win. If if there's any hope of you know being successful next year at the World Cup, they they need to lay a marker down and say that we are serious about not only just hosting it, but also Go, you know, going as far as they can at the World Cup. I'm not prepared to make uh, bold statements like that as far as you know for next year. But in India, oh, I think yeah, it's 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 win or bust, really. It's multifaceted, James. It's not just winning. We also need to see some of these younger players in the squad who we've seen emerge in the last 12 months. Some of these players need to step up and say, "I am an I am a first choice caliber international player, and I can help this team in the home World Cup next year." It's not. Not enough just to have squad players, James. We need four or five players to really step up and become regular first-team caliber players who start pushing for these starting places in that squad. We've seen a few of them come into the squad. It's time in this tournament they they really lay a marker down and start pushing for a starting position. I'm a little worried about the back line, actually. It's a, it's a very overloaded front third. We won't go through the full squad, but there's a lot of players in there who are attacking-minded and and it's all good to want to play on the front foot, and that's clearly the way that Tony wants to play. I worry they've left themselves a little short at the back. Yeah, but that's been you know the issue we've been talking about for quite a while with this side um, as now. But it does look like they're going to have to win these games going forward. So for me, a pass mark is making the final and the, and not getting blown out in that set, in that final. But to do that, you. You really are going to have to um, really do do something to make sure that uh, you get through your group unscathed as well. Because you've got Thailand, the Philippines, and Indonesia. Three sides that, you know, with well, whatever level of respect you want to call it, the Matilda should be easily handling themselves in all of those games. So for me, I'm also looking at uh, someone like Mary Fowler. What's she going to do? Because like, there's no questioning her talent level. What's she going to do on a stage like this in a tournament where she could totally be, uh, you know, the difference maker? As, uh, well, people like Sam Kerr will deservedly get a lot of the uh, initial headlines. That's exactly yeah. what I'm saying, James. We need players like Mary Fowler to step up and not just be good players. We need to be top quality international players. And there's a few others in the squad who are like that. You're like your Charlie Grant, who's had a few opportunities. Tegan Micah, Courtney Nevin, players like this who've got a handful of opportunities now. We need them to go and become real, not the stars of the tournament, but players who are among the best one or two players in their position at the tournament. I think that's what we're really looking for in this tournament. And I do think they have to win it because it's, it's going to be them or Japan who end up winning this Asian Cup. And I think they need to lay a marker down 
in their region of we are the best team in Asia going into the World Cup next year if they're going to have the confidence to to push on. I can tell you that our our colleagues at the uh, Japanese Football View would be saying the exact same thing about Natashiko's uh, chances at the Asian Cup. That they need to win just as much as the Matildas do because I think for the two for the two big uh, Asian superpowers. They need to lay down a marker for this for this continent, um, and and yeah, so I think that's that's it's going to be a repeat of the last uh, last final in Jordan. Just um, a quick one about the tournament itself. Um, Matilda's play all three games at uh, the Mumbai Football Arena, which is uh, eleven thousand capacity, but all games are going to be behind closed doors because of the COVID pandemic in uh, India, and that all all three venues uh, there's uh, in Mumbai, Navi Mumbai. And Poon are uh, all in the state of Mahahastra, so not much travel between um, the lot. In fact, it'll be it'll be almost it's actually almost akin to should the the, the Asian Cup be in Australia and basically playing in um, playing Sydney Football Stadium, Western Sydney, and Newcastle. That's Don't pretty give people much ideas. <laughs> Well, that's pretty much what what it is. So it's obviously been scaled right back because of the pandemic in India, which is you know you think it's bad here in Australia, but um, yeah, we're talking you now another world over there. But um, but yeah, look, that's that's what it comes down. Yeah, that as I said before, you know, Matilda's going. But what I what I also in summary is well, what I want to see is I don't. I'd be more concerned if it's someone like a Sam Curley goes and absolutely dominates because we know how good she is. But to Scott's point, in which I absolutely agree, it's time for Generation Next to help out the likes of a Sam Kerr, you know, and and those top players. A player like a Haley Rasso probably needs to step up and really put, you know, name name ground one. A defender other than Claire Polkinghorn, you know, out there, you know, do, doing the defence. You know, or Alana Candy or um, Steph Catley. Because I said, we're going to need, it's got to be a, a squad performance. It can't be just on the same 11 players relying. Because even as we see, you know, that this Australia's top 11 players are world class. There's no question about that. The problem is, if they don't fire, then what? Yeah, health and all that was probably going to play as big of a role as well. Um, now, the Matildas, they kick off their tournament uh, Friday, the 21st of January, when they're playing Indonesia, 8 p.m. Brisbane time. Uh, one of those uh, wonderful... Yeah, one of those, uh, well, time zone things that really does uh, work out well for Australian viewers. Um, then they're playing the Philippines, 8 p.m. on Monday, the 24th, and then things will close out on the night of Thursday, the 27th, but it is officially listed as midnight on Friday, the 28th of January. And those are the group stage games and continue to check in on the Matilda's progress here on the Brisbane Football Review. But that second game could be very interesting as well, James, quickly coached by Alan Stadges, the Philippines as well. So I'm sure that could be a bit of an interesting subplot to the group stage. Interesting, interesting fact about the uh, Filipino team is that there actually, there actually are twelve players in that squad that they've named who actually have U.S. college experience, either playing college now or have played in the past. So there might be a bit of, um, there might be a bit of uh, ammunition that Alan Stadich may have available. I, look, I again, I think that Matilda should win, but again, as we were talking about the Raw and Wellington before, you go into these games complacent, and the same goes against Indonesia or Thailand. Yeah, these teams these teams could do some damage. Yeah, and that's and you know almost backtracking to uh, where we were with the Raw and Wellington Phoenix, where you know if the Matildas don't show up for their games ready to play, they are every chance of getting stunned because these tournaments can always produce those sorts of uh, wacky results. And the last thing you want to do is leave yourself vulnerable come um, kickoff time. That Thailand game, right. especially, is going to be dangerous. Um, you all remember what happened in Jordan, where uh, they need Alana Kennedy um, stoppage time goal to make the final, to, to actually, sorry, to um, to get to extra time, and then penalties, and then win on penalties to make the final. So that is a very, very dangerous game, and I think the road to the final does become drastically harder if if they don't win 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 the group. Yes. All right. Um... So that's the Asian Cup preview. We will wrap up now at what is coming in the week ahead for the Brisbane Raw men and women. Now, we are recording this on a Tuesday, and the big reason for that is the Raw 
men are back in action. Their third game in seven days against, and this time it will be against Perth, who are playing their first game since December 8th after their uh, COVID and border issues. That will be a Wednesday night game, followed by a double header on Sunday. Now, I think I've got this order correct. The women are playing Newcastle at 3 p.m. And then the men are playing Adelaide United at 5.45. Excellent. I did remember. This is what happens for going away from the uh, webpage that had all the features up. Anyway, <laughs> first things first, Adam, what are you expecting from the Wednesday night game against Perth? Uh, this, this is actually getting quite intriguing, I think, because uh, Perth coming out of six weeks of non-competitive action, obviously they are warming up, they've obviously been training, uh, they've got the trip over, I don't, I don't know if they're actually here yet in, in Brisbane or whether they're still in Perth or in transit, but uh, yeah, this is uh, this could be anything. Uh, I, I expect Raw to win based on simply that They've got a couple of games under their belt. They might be a bit more sort of battle-tested than Perth. But then again, you just do not know what the effect the effect could be as far as that. So, yeah, Raw, raw for me uh, to win uh, tomorrow night or Wednesday night, depending on when you're reading this, but uh, listening to this. But, um, but, yeah, look, Perth, I, don't, I just do not know what to expect from them. It should be a must-win game for Brisbane, shouldn't it, given that all the issues that Perth have gone through. I think part of their squad actually stayed in Sydney, James. Some, not even all the players went back to Perth when they were cleared out, when they were allowed to leave the hotel up here in Brisbane. So they haven't even been fully together, I don't think, over the time. So it's an interesting one. I think Brisbane should win the game. I think they have to win the game. Whether they will or not remains to be seen because you can kind of build up your adrenaline on a one-off game can't you? And in, in the first game back, you can build up. And we saw Brisbane build up from minute one to minute 90 against Sydney. So it can be done. But this is a much... They all have to win this game, don't they? Surely. This is three games at home to kickstart the season. And it's got to start tomorrow night against... Or Wednesday night against Perth Glory. Yeah. It's three points or bust uh, in this game as well. Perth are going to be rusty. They're going to be all... I don't want to say all over the place, but they are going to be in a situation where they aren't going to be operating at full strength and for the raw yes i'm sure they will be tired um i would be expecting at least a couple of changes to the team from saturday night but i i just keep coming back to the fact that they've been playing they've had a chance to knock off the rust Perth haven't and i think when we were originally talking about this game when it was meant to be played on december 18th we were all thinking that maybe the raw might actually like these are two pretty even teams at full strength. You know, both, you know, have some question marks, both certainly capable of finding a way to get three points, but certainly not, you know, a clear advantage one way or the other. And that's why I keep coming back to the fact that the Raw, if they want to really get their season going, need to win this game. I don't care how. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, 1-0 with a Scott Neville header in the 62nd minute off a corner or something, or if it's, you know, three goals in the first 10 minutes uh, from Juan Lascano or something. They just need to find a way to get three points and keep building on what we've seen in the last two games against Sydney FC. Now, moving on to the weekend. Scott, we'll let you go mm-hmm. first for this one. Double header, women's and men's. What are you thinking for these two games? I was going to say I think the Royal women should be beating Newcastle, but after what happened against Wellington, you never know, right? I mean... Look, they should beat Newcastle, in all fairness, at home, but they've got to turn up. And if they turn up like they did against Wellington, it's another trap game. But I think they will be, they will get over the line against Newcastle. The Adelaide game in the men's, I think, is more difficult. Because, it's again, it's four games in 10 days for the Raw. And Adelaide have been playing week in, week out without any real interruption. So they've been quite fortunate through this um, COVID outbreak case in the league. So I think they've been fortunate. I think that's a bit of a trap game, that game against Adelaide. I mean, they've got a great record up here in Quinton as well. So that's a bit of a trap game, but I think the women should get the points. So maybe four points out of six on Sunday. Well, you beat me to it. And what worries me most as well, Adam, is the fact that it looks like they might have finally discovered uh, some goal-scoring ability because unlike the Raw's last uh, men's home game, which was against Adelaide, they seem to have discovered a much more potent way to goal, and it's not just the left foot of Craig Goodwin. 
Yeah, um, I think I think you you really can't just reflect on oh what oh, from what happened yeah in their first meeting up here. I I think I think uh, Adelaide are sort of they're, they're building along without anything. Like the results haven't been, you know, spectacular. Um, but obviously they've also been, you know, mess, you know, wrangling the likes of Melbourne City and Melbourne Victory, who are, you know, at, at the you know, top end of the table. So, yeah, look for for mine, I I think this is a, a, a probably a draw, uh, a score draw for the Raw and the men. Um, I think I think you'd be happy with that. Um, it'd be, if if they get the points against Perth, I wouldn't be so concerned. If there's a dross, loss or draw against Perth, then that's going to be a real problem. Um, as for the, as for the women, look, I actually think it's going to be a draw. Uh, I think I think Newcastle actually are fairly underrated as a team, and uh, yeah, look, I think until the Raw can prove they can play you now a full you now a, a better part of a ninety minute performance, um, it does leave them vulnerable from time to time. And uh, look, I, this Newcastle side is. No, they are actually a, a pretty good side. So, um, look, I actually think there's going to be two draws with a doubleheader on the weekend. Scott? Yeah, I think four points out of six. I think the women will beat Newcastle. They'll get over the line somehow, some way, and I think Adelaide and Brisbane will play out a draw in the men's competition. We can only hope. There is a lot of football to look forward to over the next seven-plus days here in southeast Queensland. And... We'll be back to recap it all on the next edition of the Brisbane Football Review. Thank you very much, Adam. Yep, thanks, gentlemen. Thank you, Scott. Good to talk to you again, James. Adam, James, you can go and record the Boston Football Review now. I look forward to listening to it. <laughs> uh, that's probably going to be unpublishable because it'll just be an hour of me swearing at that uh, playoff performance. But good news is now I get to enjoy the playoffs as a neutral, as long as it's not <laughs> Buffalo. Anyway, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, get out to the Raw this weekend if you can. It's... Uh, yeah, looking like it's going to be a wonderful couple of evenings up on the peninsula, or as we prefer to call it, Adam's Backyard. And uh, we'll yeah. be back to recap it all on the Brisbane Football Review on Clutch Radio. We'll talk to you next week.